Okay, so we are in Acts chapter 3 today, and I made a few comments last time which I want to repeat today when it comes to understanding this great book. And on top of that, I want to say this, that every part of the Word of God really does have three parts to it. It has an historical part, a doctrinal part, and an eschatological part. The Bible is all to us, but it's not all for us. And hopefully over the last few studies, you've been able to see the difference between what was uh, presented to us from an historical aspect to what is still relevant to us in the aspect of what is doctrinal and what is not. In a nutshell, the Pauline epistles are for today without any doubt, whereas most of Acts is going to be uh, taught from me from a historical perspective. Also from last time, we looked at chapter 2 and uh, spent quite a bit of time going through chapter 2 over two Sundays to give as much information as I could to you all without going too deep and losing people that my overall thoughts from Acts chapter 2 was I guess found in chapter 2 verse 40 save yourselves from this untoward generation that generation rejected and crucified their Messiah so not to be saved from sin per se but from apostasy and unbelief and that generation were gone to be judged and destroyed in 70 AD so be careful, please, when you read verses like Acts 2.38, when Peter stands up and says to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You can't miss it that the early church was very Jewish and most of Acts of the Apostles is going to be presented to the reader from a Jewish perspective. Dr. Luke was a Jew. In fact, the entire Bible was written by Jewish men. And so Dr. Luke as a Jew, Dr. Luke as one of the 70, I believe, uh, is going to present the early church from a Jewish perspective. And I think I'll say this very quickly if I may, that the early church was Jewish, and the last church before the second coming will be Jewish as well. And I say that because we believe at this ministry in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that the calling away of the church, the great snatch, as somebody once called it, which you find in Revelation chapter 4, will occur before the great tribulation. And during the great tribulation, the Lord is going to turn back to Israel. And that's why I think the, the, uh, the final church will be Jewish, very much like the early church was. And on top of that, I made the comments during my study through 1 Corinthians 13 concerning that expression, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And I put my case forward that that term is in reference to the second coming of Christ. Some people think that word that is in reference to the word of God. And it could be, but because the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, which are going to be Jewish and are going to be raised up during the Great Tribulation, are going to have the sign gifts. We can't be too dogmatic about when that is going to occur. And of course, that word that is neuter. And people say, well, Christ can't be referred to as that. Yes, he can. You were told back in the Gospel of Luke, when that thing is born, he will be called the Son of the Highest. So the Lord God can be referred to in the neuter, but uh, my main thought I guess really from 1 Corinthians 13 was to leave the door slightly ajar. On top of that I showed you from Acts 2 how Karl Marx, a reprobate, twisted Acts chapter 2 as many people do. Hitler did it also in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, Karl Marx twisted Acts 2 to teach he would have you believe a form of socialism and as a result some of his children starved to death because he didn't believe that it was necessary to work. He thought that uh, what you are finding in Acts 2 was to be mandatory for all times, which of course is ridiculous. And what we found very clearly in Acts chapter 2 was voluntary. We found the Jewish believers gathering 
They were pooling all of their resources and giving their resources to the Jewish apostles. It was voluntary, not mandatory. So please be careful when you read these verses because, like I say, Hitler was very good at twisting the word of God and he became an anti-Semite along with some of the reformers, I'm sorry to say. And on top of that, Karl Marx was also very good at twisting the scriptures. And we know from the word of God how these people twist the word of God to their own damnation. So you can be very careful when you read the word of God. But one final time, three areas when it comes to understanding the word of God. Historical, doctrinal and eschatological. Let's move on, please. Acts chapter 3. Let's commence this Lord's Day service, if you may, in verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple. At the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. Peter and John. There's no Pope Peter here. They're going up together. And you're going to find Peter and John listed together. You're going to find Paul and Silas listed together. You're going to find Paul and Barnabas listed together. You're going to find the apostles suffering together. You're going to find Peter and John being detained and tortured together. There's no one-man ministry here. There's going to be a great uh, sense of corporate worship here. A great sense of unity. There's no one man calling all the shots. They're going to work as a team. And Dr. Luke says... Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, which, if he's going by the Jewish uh, timing, would be about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the temple itself wasn't a problem. Yes, the Lord said he was the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of the temple. The temple wasn't a problem per se. It was the system itself, the unbelieving system, the people that rejected the Lord of the Bible, who rejected their Messiah. That was the problem. That, of course, is where the issue lay and that's why you can be careful when you read the word of God not to read into the text something which is not there but they're going to go up to the temple to pray and the temple is very much their headquarters the temple is very much their base they're still very much interested in Jerusalem as their city as their town if you will their local headquarters and that pictures what we are supposed to do I suppose as Bible believers is to start in our own communities witnessing and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ to unsaved people and then go out from there but I'm very interested in the fact that this early group of Jewish believers are still interested in their Jewish temple because the temple, as I say, wasn't a problem, but it was the unbelieving Jews that were the issue, the apostate uh, Jewish people, so on and so forth. And you were told to pray for them, to make them jealous, so on and so forth. Verse 2, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which are called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. This beggar is outside of the temple and he's begging. And you think to yourself, did the Jewish leaders of his generation ever stop to give him the time of day? I don't know. But he's outside this temple, which was the centre of the world to the Jewish people. And he's begging. He's probably been there all of his life. And he sees Peter and John. Again, not just Peter on his own, not just John on his own, but Peter and John about to go into the temple. And he asks for alms. Old English for money. As I say, he's begging. He wants to be given something from a financial perspective. But like John chapter 3, they're going to go beyond his financial need and meet his spiritual need. Verse 4, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. Look on us. Put your eyes on us. Focus on us. These things are temporary, but the things of God are eternal. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. The sign gifts are still very prevalent at this point in the early church. They're going to do Signs and wonders left, right and centre. And they are going to do it because they are going to write the New Testament. If I was to say to you, I am an apostle, but I have no sign gift, you wouldn't believe me. Muhammad claimed to be an apostle 
and yet he had no sign gifts. But Peter was an apostle along with John. They got the sign gifts. I'm going to come back to that later. Verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, with the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That term is found throughout the book of Acts, in the name of Jesus Christ. We also see from Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But he says here, silver and gold have I none. He wasn't a wealthy man, unlike the Catholic Church today, which claims to be a successor of Peter. But such as I have, give I thee. Which is going to give him physical healing and possibly down the line, spiritual healing. This man may go on to get saved. We're not told explicitly in the book of Acts. But he's going to bypass his physical need and deal with his spiritual need, which was healing, which of course is physical and also spiritual, because behind his physical uh, issue was of course a spiritual need to be met, which of course is a new birth. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's no guarantee today that if you were to go down your local high street and meet a group of so-called Christians, that you would be healed. In fact, in our town, we have a group of charismatics, which have now decided to do a weekly outreach and they have this big banner which says healing and I watched this group over the last several weeks and I'm very interested in them because they are claiming to be able to offer healing and yet we have a law in this country which uh, goes back to if you offer something and you can't guarantee it or if you make a promise and you can't fulfill it uh, you can be prosecuted it falls under the trade description act and I often think to myself, what would happen if somebody was to approach this group of charismatic Christians and say, hey, I've got a problem, um, uh, suffering from leukemia, or I've got a problem with my eyesight, or I'm blind, or I'm deaf, or whatever it could be, I've lost an arm or a leg, and this crowd would pray over such a person, what would happen if that person wasn't healed? Could that person prosecute? Could that person complain? Could that church find itself being prosecuted? I think it's quite possible. If I was to promise you something and couldn't deliver it to you, you could hold me responsible. But here, there's no problem. Peter is going to promise something and he's going to be able to deliver it because he was an apostle. And also, in the name of Jesus Christ is very much in reference to his deity. When you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you and therefore Jesus Christ has to be God. And because he is God, he can give you healing. And here he's going to give this beggar physical healing which may go on to spiritual healing which may go on to the new birth later on. But like I said, we're not explicitly told that from the word of God. And Peter, being a faithful Jew, is going to reach out to the people of Israel because the Jewish Messiah went to the people of Israel first of all. And from the people of Israel, they're going to go out to the Gentiles. And you can't miss it, can you? This is still very much a Jewish church. As I say, they're still very much in Jerusalem. There's no Gentiles present. The focus is on the temple because they could have been under the illusion that Christ was going to come back at any moment. And he may have gone back to the temple. And yet he told them, didn't he, in Matthew 24, how the temple was going to be destroyed. But he didn't tell them when the temple was going to be destroyed. Let's move on, please. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He picked him up and immediately right away his feet and ankle bones received strength. I've seen these people over the years who claim to be able to heal. And I've seen these people, these poor individuals who've got nothing, traveling land and sea to go and see healers and evangelists to receive their healing so-called and they arrive sick and they leave sick we had an event back in the 1980s where pope john paul ii came to the uk and they brought all the sick and the needy to 
cathedral, I think it was Canterbury, but I might be wrong. And he arrived at this massive cathedral in the south of England. Thousands of sick people were, were brought to him on stretchers and carried in, so on and so forth. And he did a bit of a wave with the hand, and not one person was healed. Again, he claims to be apostolic. He claims to be an apostle, that's one of his titles, and yet he couldn't heal anyone, which is evident in and of itself that he's not an apostle. But this man heard the words from Peter. This man responded to the words of Peter, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. That's a one-off event, that's a miracle, that's a supernatural event. You can't miss it. Verse 8, And he leaping up stood and walked, and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Into the temple, that's their base, that was the centre of their world. He's rejoicing, he's leaping, he's almost dancing. That's a great miracle, and yet, as I say, you look at people today, they go to these healing events week in, week out, and they arrive sick, and they leave sick. What's going on here? There's no healing, like you find in the book of Acts. There's placebo, there's the potential to uh, deceive somebody through imparting or infusing or uh, imparting to them unclean spirits, and that's another subject for another day. But this man was leaping, walking, and praising God. That's great, because he was a Jew, although he was a beggar outside of the Jewish temple, and he'd been there for many years, quite possibly, his time had come to be healed. And like I said, the temple isn't the issue. It was the people within the temple. It was the unbelieving Israelites. And you saw that very clearly back in the book of Ezekiel when he was told by the Lord to go to the people of Israel and preach to them. And God said to Ezekiel, don't fear them. They'll have hard words. They'll be like scorpions. But go to them, preach to them because I love them. My love for them is unconditional. And I want them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. They couldn't deny it. They knew who this man was. And yet the heart is desperately wicked. If you don't want to believe something, you won't believe it. And I spent hours and hours and hours over the years speaking to people on the streets about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they won't receive it, they will never receive it. If their hearts are hard, if they won't soften their hearts, they will never receive it. And yet some of these people that saw this man get healed in a physical sense, are no doubt going to go on to get saved in a spiritual sense. Verse 11. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch, that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. The lame man held Peter and John. And I have made that uh, issue, I want to make that issue if I may, I want to underline that if I may, because, or bring that to your attention if I may, because some people think that this man wasn't completely healed, Hence why he's holding on to Peter and John. I don't think so. I think he's simply rejoicing for joy. He's simply embracing Peter and John for the fact that they, both of them, not just Peter, although Peter may have been the main spokesman, but these two Jewish apostles, through the Holy Spirit, of course, have given this man his feet again. So he's holding on to Peter and John for joy. And all the people are running together to see what was going on because a miracle has just occurred right under their nose. They couldn't miss it. And yet signs and wonders don't necessarily result in salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ said how a sinful and an unbelieving generation sought after a sign, back in Matthew chapter 12 I think it is, and yet no sign shall be given unto this wicked and adulterous generation. So be very careful if you're into the signs and wonders movement, because signs and wonders don't necessarily prove you are who you are, but here you're going to find signs and wonders left, right and centre, because this is the generation, this was the era of signs and wonders, which goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message, how Acts of the Apostles is primarily an historical book. This is what happened back in the days of 30, 31, 32, 34, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 40, 80 and onwards. 
And that's why I think this book very much feels to me anyway like a fifth gospel. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. You men of Israel, there's no Gentiles present. Why do you marvel at this? Why are you so surprised at this? We didn't do this by our own power or holiness, but we made this man to walk through the Holy Spirit. And I think of this term holiness, and I think of that term Holy Father. And I think to myself, Peter has been very unfairly dubbed the first Pope, and Peter very unfairly has been hijacked by the Catholics to be their initial character, their initial uh, figurehead, if you will. And yet I was talking to a man in Eastbourne a few weeks ago, came up to me, he took one of our tracks and he said to me, what's all this about? He said, I'm a Catholic. In fact, I'm a Eucharistic minister, he told me. I said to him, well, you know, your church has many problems. And to cut a long story short, I said to him, your Pope says he's the Holy Father. That's blasphemy. And he said to me, well, that's just a term. I thought, well, that may just be a term to you. But God is a very jealous God. God is jealous. He won't share his glory with anyone else. So it may just be a name to you. It may just be a title or a term to you. But to God, it's a big deal. And Peter's very clear here how... It wasn't through his holiness, and we have no holiness outside of our imputed righteousness, and we have no power or no authority of our own, but we get power and we get authority from the new birth. Verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, this is so Jewish, there's no Gentiles present. The God of our fathers. God is not the God of the Gentiles. God was the God of the Jews back in the Old Covenant. But now God is the God of Jew and Gentile. But you've got to believe on him. And he goes on to say, Whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. This goes back to the Lord's sovereignty on the one hand, middle knowledge. And this also feeds into man's free will. How these two run side by side is very difficult to really understand it's even more difficult to try and explain but my understanding of middle knowledge is as follows that the lord looks down from eternity past and he sees a group of people in time who respond to a given situation and however they respond to that given situation is what he tells his uh, prophets and apostles and writers of the word of god to put in scripture whatever they do with any given situation will warrant it will determine what the outcome is going to be but Jesus Christ was sent to die for the sins of the world. We saw that from John uh, chapter 3, verse 16, how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son, so on and so forth, that if you believe on him, you wouldn't perish. So that gives you the atonement. That shows the Lord dying for the sins of the world, or that shows the Lord sending his Son to die for the sins of the world. That's the Lord's sovereignty. That's the Lord's atonement. But what you do with it, how you respond to that, will guarantee or it will decide where you go when you die. So here the emphasis is on Israel needing to acknowledge that they have crucified their Messiah. And yet Pilate was determined to let him go. That doesn't exonerate Pilate from crucifying the Messiah. And on top of that, that doesn't uh, negate the Jews' responsibility for crucifying the Messiah. That's why I started this broadcast giving you Acts 2.40. Because the Jews are still responsible for their Messiah's death. The Jews are still responsible for rejecting him. And at the same time, God is going to move beyond that and offer them salvation. Verse 14. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murder to be granted unto you. And killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. You denied the Holy One, being Jesus Christ, not Mary. And desired a murderer, being a very questionable character back uh, in the Gospels, whose name escapes me. And killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. They were eyewitnesses 
to what occurred. And I've made the case over the last several weeks how you can't question what the apostles saw and did. They were eyewitnesses. And therefore, to question their authenticity is to question the reliability of Almighty God. And the man I'm thinking about was Barabbas, of course. Verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Through faith in this man's name, this man has been made strong. Now you can spiritualize this and go to Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, there's that word, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, so on and so forth. But if you leave it from a historical perspective, and this man, or through this man, through his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has made this person strong, has healed this man. In other words, the beggar had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be healed, and his faith resulted in him being healed. You can have faith today, and not necessarily be healed, but here, this man had faith to be healed, and he was healed. Verse 17, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. Ignorance is no excuse of the law, and ignorance is no excuse of the Lord. Yes, it's true the Jews rejected him through ignorance, and yet the Lord is still going to hold him accountable for that. They have to be held accountable for it. Because there's no other atonement, there's no other way to be reconciled to God outside of a blood atonement. 18. But those things, which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Old Testament quoted throughout this book, throughout this account, it's infallible, you can trust it, it's not something which has been fabricated, there are 65 prophecies written about a king being Jesus Christ and his kingdom thousands of years before he was born and they all come through to pass, they all are fulfilled right down to the letter because God wrote the Bible, the Bible is divine in origin, not human, but one more time, but those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. They were told that Christ would come and die for the sins of the world, but this group of unbelieving Israelites were on the wrong side of history. This is a great worry that I have, that many people living today are on the wrong side of history. Many people may be well-intended, they may be sincere, but they are on the wrong side of history, and as a result, they're going to die one day and be judged and perish. But if you turn to the Lord, if you receive him as your saviour and Lord, he will save you. The word of God says he will save you to the uttermost. Look at verse 19, please. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, unto the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Much material in there. Repent, 19, change your mind, acknowledge that you've done wrong. Which goes back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come. This is second coming, not the first coming, from the presence of the Lord. This goes back to my understanding that Peter still very much is of the mindset that the Lord's return could be imminent. He doesn't yet know that the grace of God is going to come along. He doesn't know about Paul, who's going to be called in Acts 9. And he doesn't know about the Christians until Acts 11. So he's still preaching this almost uh, messianic return of Christ. And on top of that, God is calling out a peculiar people unto himself. He knew the temple was going to be destroyed, Matthew 24. But he didn't know when it was going to be destroyed. Hence why he's preaching this almost law and faith, uh, or this grace and law. This old covenant and new covenant message, which goes back to John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, repent and be baptized, 
or repent and prepare for the coming of the Messiah, because Peter was an apostle of John the Baptist, before he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet this is progressive revelation. And this goes back to what I said last time, how Peter wasn't infallible. Peter didn't have all of the uh, truth revealed to him. That would go to Paul, and you find that very clearly from Acts 9, so you're getting a almost Jewish style of evangelism here. You're getting a, a Jewish presentation of law and grace, Old Covenant and New Covenant, which is slightly confused, especially when we read back into the Word of God with the Pauline epistles to help us understand what is occurring. But to be fair to Peter, he is still dealing with the light that he was given at this point in time. And he goes on to say, uh, when God was saying, Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, obviously the first coming, whom the heaven must receive into the times of restitution of all things. That happened when he went up to heaven and he gave his blood to the Lord. He left his holy blood, his divine blood at the altar in heaven, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. No other faith in the world can claim this. No other faith in the world can claim to have an infallible book, which we call the word of God. And that's why Peter's going to preach uh, as well as he can with what light he has to the people of Israel what he understands the gospel to be up until this point in time. But give him the benefit of the doubt, give him a chance to uh, fully understand the full counsel of God, because Peter's still dealing with the light that God has given him up until this time, which one last time goes back to what I said all along, how Peter was not the Pope of Rome, Peter was not this individual who had all of the truth and all of the light. He was very much in need to be taught, and that's why Paul would come along in Acts 9 and also Galatians chapter 2 and explain the deeper things the apostle peter so i'm going to close it today for me in verse 21 which really is looking at the second coming of christ not the first coming or even the intermediate period which is called the church age i'm not sure peter was even aware clearly of what the church age was yes he was told back in john 10 how the lord would have sheep of another fold he'd have people that would come into his fold which were not historically from israel which of course are the gentiles but I'm not overly convinced that Peter truly understood the church age and the gospel of the grace of God. Hence why Paul is going to be called to preach, to teach the deeper things of the Lord to the people of Israel. And that would include Peter as well. And that kind of steals Peter's thunder, if you will. That kind of rules out the so-called papal infallibility, which the Catholic Church has been pushing for centuries. But the truth of the matter is there is no Pope Peter and there's no vicar of Christ. And yet, if you want to really push it home as to who the vicar of Christ would be... It would have to be the Holy Spirit, not the Apostle Peter. But I'll close there, if I may, in verse 22. And next time we will continue from Acts 3, verse 22.